Yeah, so yeah, my name is Santi. I will do a presentation about uh, about um, anarchist in Russia and anti-war movement, like movement against war in Ukraine. But I, I have to make a disclaimer that I'm not talking in behalf of Ukrainian anarchists. I don't know so much about the Korean anarchist movement. I know about um, about the Russian anarchist movement because I was living 13 years in Russia. But then uh, I was deported 10 years ago, but I'm still involved in some projects with, uh, with Russian anarchists and, and the authorities. But also, and also I must say that it's currently the anti-war movement in Russia in general, it's not uh, yet even close to stop the war. So there is often this war has some difficult political questions in terms of kind of anti-militarist position and anti-authoritarian position, like how we can be one of the sides of the wars, because obviously most of the sides there is all the kinds of people who are basically not uh, close to us at all. But um, but then, so it would be easy to say that, okay, we are just for the anti-war movement and we have to stop the war, like just make anti-war agitation so that uh, people will stop going to the front. But historically, this is something that uh, usually almost never happens. Wars usually finished by, by leaving the war and it's only like a couple of cases that anti-war movement have actually managed to stop the war. This is like First World War is, is one of them in the final phase, but uh, not so many others. And, and even uh, more, it's even more unusual that the war has, which has been going more or less well, has been stopped by the people. Usually there has to be some sort of setbacks and prolongation of the war. War until, uh, you know, People are protesting against it, but it's obviously like common position of anarchist in Russia. All anarchists in Russia wish for Russian defeat, and uh, my personal position is that I hope that Ukraine doesn't lose either. That they get at least the same situation as before this February. Because otherwise, this can be some sort of propaganda victory for, for Putin and Putin's regime. Regime, but there is also some anarchists in, in Russia. They hope that both of the sides win, but no one is hoping that Russia will win this war. No one thinks this is some sort of anti-fascist denazification war. This is obvious to everyone. And also in this presentation. I cannot go so deep to the origins of the war and what happened in 2014 and, and this modern things. But just in the beginning, I had to say that the war already started in 2014 and there was uh, one year of intense operations. And then since 2015, and the, the screen there has been lessening, less intense war and less uh, intense operations. But it, uh, there has not been any point that there has actually been peace in this area. So, but first I know a bit about these Russian propaganda claims. I don't know how familiar this is. Maybe you come across this with discussion with some kind of, of leftists. 
And first, of the Russian propaganda claim is that, uh, that Ukraine is, is governed by the Nazis. But here we can like take two, there is basically two propositions which don't necessarily contradict each other. So you can say that, okay, Ukraine has a strong fascist and Nazi movement, relatively strong. They are, because Ukraine is a big country, they have a they have uh, 40 million people, so even if one out of thousand is uh, fascist, there is still 40,000 fascists, which is a lot. But also, you can also claim that fascists and Nazis have no influence in Ukrainian politics. And these don't uh, contradict each other, because there can be a big fascist movement which is still not about to take over the country. And there was uh, definitely many people had this fear up in 2014, because the Ukrainian army was very unprepared in the war and uh, in the operations they were and not the centralized state didn't really manage in many areas to organize good defense so it, the war was especially in the first months it was waged by these voluntary battalions which were in many cases organized by the far-right activists but then far-right activists were not able to use this uh, and th th they also of course got lots of kind of positive coverage and these voluntary militias were respected in the society and lots of people joined these movements but they didn't really manage to use this for their, for their benefit and in the elections far-right didn't do very well, there was more or less like far-right and fascist coalition, they only got 2% of the votes, they didn't get past the election barrier, they had maybe one, one deputy, because there are some deputies which are, which get there if they get most of the votes in the area, but they didn't get, uh, they listed didn't get to the parliament, but also another like more populist far-right party, also didn't pass this barrier. So in the parliamentary politics the far-right is doing pretty badly. And there was also in I did this talk in Porto one week ago and, and there was uh, someone asked, so but how can you say that this how can you measure like this to far-right influence? Because of course anarchists are also don't participate to parliament as does mean that anarchists would uh, never have any influence. But this is also like difference between fascist movements and uh, kind of grassroots movements because fascists they are not really a grassroots movement they want uh, political power and they can have this by two means either by some political violence or by going to elections but both of these failed in, in Ukraine and they didn't even dare so much to try to proceed with the political violence they were attacking like some prior demonstration and, and anti-fascist events but they didn't get so much uh, done with this, and it was quite widely condemned, this kind of action. So they tried to go to parliamentary politics, and they failed to do this. They are fascists, are not organizing strikes or, or some mass movements. It's not something that they are doing. So they tried to get the political power, and they didn't manage to do this. And also, Russia, of course, it doesn't have less fascists than Ukraine, probably even more. Now, Russian kind of fascism, which is not independent from Kremlin, it's, it's kind of crushed in Russia. Russia and, and uh, more or less underground, but uh, it's still uh, happening. I will also talk about this later. 
but fascist which is kind of supporting Putin and Kremlin, it's very strong and, and also there are this kind of fascist uh, units now waging war in Ukraine, even with some armed bands and, uh, and swastikas and this kind of stuff. So this whole issue that this is kind of denazification war is kind of ridiculous to claim this. Also, second Putin propaganda claim is that there is a genocide of, of Russian people in Donbas. There is mistake should be made here. And yeah, it's it's true that in the eight years there has been some shooting and sometimes fighting happening in this area. And uh, also civilians have been dying, but there has been less and less civilians dying. So in the first uh, like three years of this war, according to the United Nations, it was more than 3,000 civilians died. And this is in the both sides, both in the Ukrainian side and in the side of the so-called People's Republics. I don't know the state in how much in the Idrosa side, and sometimes you don't even know, because basically it can be the front line, can be in the middle of some village. So someone can die, your neighbor is dying, and then it's kind of Ukrainian civilian, but uh, in the other side of the state, someone dies, and then it's a separatist, but this is also the pointless division, because before the war, this was all the same people, all of these people are basically. Ukrainian citizens, and I know most everyone is a Russian speaker, they are in this area. So then during the next four years, it was all together 149 deaths. And then of the last year, 2021, I only have the statistics of the separatists themselves. But they say that eight people died in the shooting. So every year there has been lots of less and less shootings of, of civilian areas. Also, who is shooting? This is difficult to say because if you go to Ukrainian side, they say that, okay, this is separatist always shooting and they are just sometimes answering. And if some civilian dies, it's just a propaganda. And of course, the separatists are saying the same. I was there five years ago in this frontline area. But basically it happens that, okay, there is some, you hear that there is shooting from the Ukrainian side, and then after a few hours they are answering, shooting some grenades back. But you don't know who started, because of course it's always revenge of revenge, and then revenge of revenge of revenge. And it goes back like eight years, so you cannot really say that, okay, these people broke, the, broke this ceasefire, because or always other side broke the ceasefire the day before and, and then the other side broke the ceasefire two days ago. So I wouldn't it's not so easy to say that who is actually the blame this continuous shooting, but it's the fact that it's much less uh, much less people dying each year and, and what is actually a genocide. This is even kind of problematic concept in general because because it's eight people if they die is it a genocide, or is, is one person dying a genocide? Maybe it is, because there is no any this international law, there is no any clear definition. What is the genocide? But if eight people dying, dying uh, in the separatist territory last year, it's a genocide, and obviously like thousand Ukrainian civilians who have done this year is also genocide. So is it like that they also transfer to this genocide with uh, much with a hundred times bigger genocide? Maybe not. 
But yeah, it's obviously it's it's always a war crime to shoot shoot uh, civilian territory, and this is obviously something that both parts have been doing all of these years. But uh, is it a genocide? It's it's maybe not an also. Is it like justified to start this kind of each war of this kind of, of thing? It's it's also kind of a question. Then also what this discussion, what about NATO and NATO influence? And this is kind of also comes back to how we generally understand like things like imperialism and colonialism and so on. Because okay, you can say that NATO is is alliance of these old imperialist powers and and the uh, USA is doing all the kinds of shitty things in the Middle East and France is also have their own you know, stuff that they do in Africa in many countries. But Europe is still slightly different because in Europe these countries they Eastern European countries there is usually some referendum and then they join the NATO with by support of the majority. So of course you can say that these people are brainwashed by liberal propaganda, but this is not really how colonialism is traditionally understood or happening. Usually colonialism, traditionally it's that uh, some country is attacking some other country and occupying them, and the people become slaves or at least second class citizens and taking away all the land or something. This is obviously something that is not happening in Estonia. Like there is no, no French and, and Americans going there and taking people's land and, and making them work for them and so on. So I think this suit, of course, you can say that uh, there is neocolonialism and neoimperialism, which is different, but, uh, but it doesn't look like this uh, Russian attack in Ukraine. And also, it's a bit problematic to. Have this kind of inflation of concepts that say that whatever kind of political lobbying or international cooperation or or even propaganda is is imperialism, and also we cannot like uh, NATO was spreading to many countries or many countries joined to NATO, also former Soviet Union countries, but we don't see this war happening currently in Estonia, for example, and uh, or, or Finland, which is now discussing about joining NATO and already put NATO membership, membership application. And the difference is that Ukraine is in this current Kremlin ideology. Ukrainians are not considered to be real people. They are considered that they are kind of Russians who because of some Nazi propaganda, I think that they are not Russians. And they kind of had to be heard from this Nazi brainwashing by brutal violence and occupation and, and repression. And uh, basically the reason behind this, this invasion is not uh, NATO expansion, but, uh, but uh, it's the Russian ultra-nationalist ideas. It's uh, this idea that uh, that all the places where Russia is spoken, like which is uh, Russian first language with this majority, they should be in the same country. And half of the Ukrainian is, is uh, basically Russian. 
Super majority, and uh, another half it's people's to Ukrainian, but also putting the Bosnians. If if he had a chance, he would probably occupy the whole Ukraine because because he also probably doesn't consider Ukrainian language his language. And also, usually leftists they often go to kind of very vulgar and crude, crude. Uh, Marxist idea to find a profit motivations everywhere and raw materials and land. And it's, it's true that Ukraine has it has the best agricultural land in the world. It's this black, it's so-called this black uh, ground. Also, it's in South Russia, Ukraine, which is the most fertile land that is in this planet. Planet, and even if agriculture is not. Currently, so profitable, it will obviously be profit, very profitable in the future. But this war is so expensive and it causes so much destruction that uh, this will not be profitable for the Russian state for maybe 50 or 100 years. And this is, and we don't know what happens in 50 or 100 years, and capitalists, they don't really. They are not so interested about profits some time after they get. So it's a very, like, when they have that, then their children also have that. So capitalism is always about uh, some destruction for the sake of, of short term profits. Profit, so it's, it's, uh, you can obviously, like all the world, are somehow also caused by the capitalism because capitalism is, is basically forcing everyone to compete and it's creating uh, its ideology of competition without without caring about the consequences. So it's capitalism is against all the kind of solidarity between workers and, and solidarity against solidarity between people in general. But this is kind of very very kind of long stretch connection and very kind of high level reason behind this world. But you cannot really find any short term profit motivation in this world. No one is, there can be some individual military businesses in, in Russia, for example, which are making profit, but most of the Russian capitalists are losing a huge amount of money. And Putin also, like I said, maybe now Putin formally doesn't have much, much property, but all of his former friends and relatives and children from uh, marriage and out of wedlock, all of them are billionaires. But uh, because uh, they stole so much uh, common assets, so that they put them in, in some tax havens. But all of this this property value has uh, dropped a lot because of this war will drop and maybe will not gain back the value during their lifetime. So they are not. These people are, are greedy, but they are not getting more rich because of this war. It has some sort of other motivation, and it's kind of. Ultra nationalist motivation. I could also discuss why kind of Russia is stepped out from this kind of liberal capitalist ideology to another kind of capitalist ideology because obviously this Russian system is still a capitalism, but it's not the capitalist, the, the billionaires are deciding. The billionaires, many billionaires, some of the billionaires actually have now escaped Russia. And also Abramovich tried to make this kind of futile attempt to negotiate, but he was poisoned by someone, we don't know who, but probably some Russian faction. So, I know that this Abramovich, it obviously shows that Abramovich is not the guy who is deciding. 
impression on him, this movie is not something like it's obviously he's not a good good person in any way, but it's, it's not someone who is behind this world. And the ruling class in, in Russia is not a capitalist, but it's the security officer, officials putting guns on the KGB, and uh, everyone who is in the highest position, they usually have either, mostly they have a KGB background, but they are some friends of Putin from his childhood or studies or, or when he began his career. Also, some people maybe have army or police background, but uh, the security service is uh, most important. So, but anyway, this, yeah, it's a long other one discussion why, what's the basically the Russian political structure and how it kind of this kind of ultra-nationalism became uh, important to maintain this kind of mafia kind of structures, but yeah, we can maybe discuss this later if we have time. So, then the last the general discussion, this is more maybe inside the anarchist, anarchist uh, circles. So, what about opposing to both sides? And here I would uh, also need, need the definition of, of imperialism a bit in context of this this talk is that imperialism is when a state pursues the conquest of some of other territories and reach the status of leading superpower. And I made this kind of definition to make clear clear um, distinction that, that we have to discuss separately from stuff that is this kind of very brutal uh, Assaults against other countries, which is imperialism, and then some sort of more subtle things, like, for example, spreading of McDonald's or, or some uh, structural adjustments, loans, or this kind of. It can be also the the problem that some cultures are are disappearing, obviously, but uh, it's not the same thing that to attack another country and to destroy physically everything there. This cannot be really discussed in the same context. context. And, and if, if we have the problem with some sort of very sloppy imperialism, the discussion that then anything can be imperialism. If, if Ukrainians don't uh, want to be occupied by Russia, but want to join NATO, for example, this is like NATO imperialism. So then, uh, like everything can be imperialism, like uh, imperialism can be justified, or maybe if you have a very sloppy definition of imperialism, then suddenly Putin is an anti-imperialist because he's fighting against the United States. Or maybe China is anti-imperialist because the Uyghurs uh, or Tibetans, they are actually imperialist because they want to separate from, from China because uh, they have been used soft imperialism by the United States or, or something like this. Like, obviously, you can have a liberal ideology of the United States money from, from many places in, in academic communities or, or whatever, like all the money from the world uh, is circulating and lots of this obviously is coming from the United States. But, uh, and this can be criticized also, like, uh, and discussed on stuff like academic independence, but you cannot really compare this of uh, Russia attacking Ukraine and killing thousands of people there. And um, Ukraine, on the other hand, is not about to conquer anything. So, obviously, Ukraine is not imperialist, but at least in this 
definition. There might be another problems related to Ukrainian ultra nationalism of industry. So, so there is, like I said, there is uh, this nationalist tendencies in Ukraine, even so they are not maybe bigger than in many other European countries. Countries and also there was uh, like fascist state violence also in Ukraine because this country is not so how to say organized and uh, the police force often doesn't have either interests or resources to, to stop different kinds of organized criminal groups. But uh, but currently it doesn't seem that I'm seeing that this Ukrainian nationalism is becoming some sort of threat. Like theoretically, of course, if Russia completely collapses and splits to different parts, and Ukraine gets lots of weapons that they can, for example, at the Crimea, and uh, take it back, which is kind of problem because it might be that majority of the people in Crimea don't really want back to Ukraine. Or they maybe would be fine to join in Ukraine like it was, was 10 years ago, but they are not so much interested to join Ukraine where Russian language has no official status and you cannot study in Russian language in all the school teaching is Ukrainian, which is the reforms that have happened after 2014. There is a group in Crimea, the Crimean Tatars, who have been in there much longer than any Russians or Ukrainians. They are less than 50% part of the population because they were suffering many genocides. During the, the last 200 years, first under the Tsar and then during the Stalin years, they are identified themselves as, as Ukraine and they are resisting the, the still the Kremlin occupation and usually non violently. They have lots of political prisoners. And it's true that these people are kind of more ordinary people there. They were never given back the lands after all of these deportations and genocides, so they are still kind of second-class citizens, just with some small lands they managed to buy with their own money, but everything that they owned before the, the genocide was still confiscated from them. So obviously there is an argument that basically these people should have more to say about the crime, but also they are a minority. They are now, after all of the genocides, most of the people there are like Vast majority of Russian speakers, probably more than maybe half of the people might identify with Russia. The support of Crimea joining Russia, it has changed. It has been uh, different in different times. Sometimes it has been quite a small part, sometimes a bigger part. But also this uh, war has increased the tensions. And that might be the people who were before more interested to live in Ukraine, they are now more against Russia. And also, also people who basically more were against Russian occupation, they have been forced to escape from Crimea. So basically, most of the people who are still living there, they are more or less kind of kind of uh, like at least more or less fine with the situation to the extent that they continue to live there, and they prevent that also because they just want to keep their lands. If they know that if they go away, they can never come back. So, but still, probably I would say that it's likely that most of the people there would like to have a huge war there and destruction. 
even if they are maybe not so happy with the Russian rule. But this is a very also theoretical perspective, where currently Ukraine doesn't have resources to even to take back this areas which were recently occupied. In many cases, well, in some cases they have managed, but they still reach territory which they haven't been getting. So it doesn't seem very likely that in the very close future Ukraine could, for example, affect Ukraine or, or something. And then, but still, I mean, this Ukrainian most internationalism is kind of a theoretical and distant future possible problem. Then, and I guess in, in many cases they were doing the most of their propagating, like not going to war and deserting. But uh, it's a problem that if everybody, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so Anakis had this, uh, had uh, been doing, especially during the First World War, but also, for example, Vietnam War, that is a go to war, you should desert. And they desert and not, not uh, refuse to join the army, which would, of course, be a good solution in the Russian side. In the Ukrainian side, is the problem that if everyone deserts in in uh, Ukraine, then uh, Russia will take over Ukraine, and then they can go to Poland, and uh, they can take, uh, if, if everybody is, is deserting to Germany, then they take Poland, and then they, they can take Germany, and then France, and eventually everyone is just in Portugal, waiting for Russia to come there. So the problem with the desertion is that it's, it's at some point uh, the imperialists should be stopped. So if, if you desert, someone else has to do it. And even if, if Ukrainian anarchists were not very much wanted to join this resistance, it still would be discredit the whole anarchist movement if they didn't do anything while the society is being destroyed. So it's kind of something, even if they are not feeling very patriotic, they don't really have much other opportunity if they want to keep the movement existing after this war. But there is some also we discussed in Porto that uh, but what's the kind of what's the use in this like uh, and there is like different opinions on this like some Ukrainian artists they are positive that uh, when they get this experience of organizing this uh, territorial defense it can be also used in the future and, and against the Ukrainian state as well. But uh, some are maybe not so positive. It might be that uh, that nothing so much comes out. Like, uh, and uh, basically, it is just the best thing that can happen is just to get back to the to the situation that before the war. But uh, actually, most positive uh, people or most optimistic are mostly especially in the big after war. They were the Russian anarchists because for Russian anarchists, this is the maybe the last chance to ever to get rid of Putin before he just dies. Because if he wins now, his position will be so strong that he will be in the power basically until he dies. And if he is as long as Mugabe, it can be like 30 years still regaining uh, the power. Because he is not close to going anywhere. So yeah, some, uh, there are some anarchists in Russia who said that okay, we are the both, we are both armies, but but no one is supporting the Russian army. So then I go a bit to 
tell about Antifa and anarchists in Russia. So, last uh, 10 years there has been kind of decline of importance of anarchists and especially Antifa in Russia. What happened to Antifa is that it basically became less relevant because the fascist uh, violence has been uh, dropping a lot in Russia. The Nazi problem has become smaller for various reasons, but it partially it's a result of the anti-fascist activities, but also pretty much a result of the police repression. It also a result of the war, because Russian fascists were really heavily split with the war. Some Russian Nazis were supporting Ukraine, because they considered it as more like nation-state, and, and Russia is multinational state, so they were supporting Ukraine, and some other fascists were supporting Russia, so they were fighting between themselves after 2014. But basically, yeah, it's, it's the thing that if anti-fascists are kind of successful, then they also, they are kind of, how to say, important in the society of the class. If, if you kind of do your purpose, you don't have so much to do. But also anti-fascists, they are also heavily repressed, and many activists had to escape Russia, or they went to prison. Also, there were there are different people in the anti-fascist movement in Russia. Not uh, not everyone is, is anti-authoritarian. There is also people who are more like Leninists and people who are just patriot, uh, anti-Nazis, and so on. And some of these people actually then were supporting the war or Crimean occupation and and, uh, and the separatist republic. It was not not many people, but still there was some internal conflicts also because of these things. And with, with anarchists, this was never a problem. It was very few anarchists who had any sympathies with the separatist movement, but this kind of Marxist or Leninist anti-fascist was sometimes a problem. But also, anarchists have been have uh, problems to adapt to new circumstances because, for example, the movement where I was involved, the most section, it was always pretty much. The, the strategy was to be like campaigns and the street actions, and to be in the street and, uh, and to join the different protest movements. But then uh, gradually all the protests have been made impossible in Russia. And the first, it was more and more difficult to get any permissions to, to demonstrate. Like legally you shouldn't be, you are not required to ask permission, but in practice police is demanding it and they arrest you. And then with the COVID, all the all the demonstrations were banned. And actually, in Russia, the, already after like two or three months, most of the COVID restrictions they were lifted. But all the demonstrations are still banned. So this is just a pretext to repress any kind of, of movement. So this kind of anti-vax conspiracy theory that uh, COVID is basically just a plot to, to create a fascist system. It's actually happened in Russia. So. So it's it's not a conspiracy theory, it's, it's true in, in some some places. So yeah, and also but with you would think that if there is more repression, actually people start to be more interested about more radical stuff. Yeah. But what happened in Russia was actually the opposite. Like when the, there was more and more repressions, people started to hope more and more that they would uh, go to elections and to change something in elections or maybe 
like some petition campaigns or this kind of thing. Like the whole like opposition in Russia during the last ten years, it, it kind of gets more and more moderate. And also Navalny movement, for example, like until he was in prison last year, and the Navalny Alexei Navalny was the most important opposition politician in Russia. But why he was so popular? He was because at first he was very good tactician, he, his strategy was to fight against corruption, and this is something that everyone is against, right? Both leftist and, and rightist and centrist and whoever, no one likes the corruption, so this is that you can do with every, everyone. And also he proposed very simple solutions. He said, that, okay, I make this video on YouTube, send it to your friends, this will change the regime. And also, okay, we try to go to elections, but we were banned from elections, so you can vote some kind of party which is not the Putin's party but some loyalist party of the Putin, like Communist Party for example, which is basically also a Kremlin Tupac party. Now Anamali was proposing that you can vote for this and then it maybe changes something, but of course it didn't change anything when he's in prison because he also had to have his show until the end. Like he had this idea that Russia is like a normal country where you can do normal politics, but he didn't have that. But so maybe, and uh, it's difficult to say if this will now change, but uh, this kind of very, kind of, how to say, criticizing not only corruption, but the uh, whole state and capitalism and so on, it got more and more marginalized in Russia. And also there was some heavy repression. For example, there was the case of so-called Nepros case in St. Petersburg and Prensa. There were people arrested in 2007 days and tortured very heavily everyone from first that they were members of some terrorist organization even though there was no any terrorist plan or not even any, any kind of structure these many of these people didn't even know each other directly they were just friends of friends of friends but uh, it is kind of heavy torture if they confessed everything then uh, after the public campaigning the torture was stopped and when they went to court, like almost everyone uh, were refusing this confession, but uh, in Russia it doesn't really matter so much if you give a confess testimony at some point, it's not cancelled, and uh, unless you manage to prove in court that you were tortured and so on, which is quite difficult. But this was basically not some low level, low level FSB court, the whole Thing was planning quite high level of the FSB and all the sentences were also decided beforehand. So it was not really possible to avoid. So all of these people got uh, prison sentences for up to 18 years in prison. And basically, yeah, they were radical anarchists. They were discussing in theory how to maybe in some sort of distant future you should, uh, you should uh, do some underground um, activity against the regime. But it was very far from any kind of practical plans. Plans, but and this was kind of a big uh, demoralizing thing for the anarchist moment because pretty much most of the anarchists, even with all these disagreements and disappointments and hating each other, they were participating in different ways to the support campaign, but they didn't. Like only, only victory was that the torture was stopped, but uh, the sentences just came. Like it was decided, no one could influence them. Uh, then another
Another case was as of Niftahov. This was also during around the same time. During the the 2018 in uh, the repression, there was anti repression protest in Moscow. was organized by the United for People's Defense and they broke some windows of the United Russian Party. In this demonstration, and after this, there was a big repression. Many people also had to escape from Russia. And Azad Miktahu was arrested. He is a mathematician. And eventually, he was also put to prison for uh, six years, just for breaking some window in the demonstration. But this was also a big kind of, of alarm to anarchists because this kind of things was possible to do like 10 years ago. Like, you can have a demonstration and do some graffiti and break some windows. And probably not much would happen, but now the situation is different and this kind of thing is, is very heavily repressed. So the situation definitely has changed. But so we go to the. Okay, I actually have to. Have to do one technical thing now quickly. Yeah, so now we finally go to the antiphon moments. This was all just, just some intro. So, yeah, during the first week of war, there were big protests. This is a picture from St. Petersburg. There were occasionally the protesters would control the city center. In Moscow, it was not like this. In Moscow, it was all the time so much police. Or actually, the National Guard, which is the, you know, the Russian Red Police, that they were just breaking all the bigger groups and people were just running around the city. Inside Petersburg, they managed to gather the bigger groups. And altogether, it was more than 15,000 people arrested in the protest in around the 70 cities during the first two months of the protests. Most of these people didn't got uh, any big centers, they maybe got some fines. Or do you want to ask? No, they got some fines. Fines, but also some people got some uh, criminal charges. Charges, and also in Russia there is the system that um, that there is kind of quick prison sentence that you might get if you if uh, the the court may sentence you to prison up to thirty days. And you can appeal this, but appeal gets more than 30 days. It's more than 30 days. So many people got this kind of short prison sentences. And also, if you get several times arrested or fined for illegal demonstration, then it might already be a felony case and you may go to up to two years in prison. So even if this, most of these 
arrested the people they immediately released. It's a big uh, pressure against doing this uh, many times. So this is why the standard demonstration stopped. There were also lots of different petitions. Some of them got more than a million signatures online and also different special groups like for example university directors petitions. There was like more than a hundred of university directors were petitioning against the war. And even like Orthodox priests, which are usually very conservative or loyal, in quite high level of the church hierarchy. So there were a higher level of much more protests against this than usual in the society, but it was still not enough to stop the war. And actually, during these first weeks, it was probably the majority of the people supporting the war. And uh, actually, and uh, actually, the um, yeah, in the first weeks it was like both they were like state kind of state controlled polling agencies, and they were independent agencies. A bit with them, like between fifty-eight or seventy-one percent were supporting this version. But also, even in this kind of state-sponsored polls, you can see a big, uh, big uh, kind of. I would say maybe like segregation or differences in different demographic groups. For example, people in the cities, they are much less supportive of the world than people in the countryside, and also younger people are much less supportive than older people. And the biggest actually indicator, which is the biggest statistical correlation, is if you are watching the television or not. Like most likely the people who watch the television, they are supporting the world, people who don't, they are against it. Because in Russia there is already, for the 20 years, there has not been independent television channels, which everyone could watch in their normal TVs. There has been some cable or private uh, televisions, but they never been available for majority of the people. And it was put in strategy that, okay, opposition can have internet, they can have papers, and they can have radio channels. But the television is, is on German and it has been actually enough. And why, basically, after 20 years of internet, people still are watching television, it's a bit first thing, but apparently, apparently that's the case. But still, like people who are less than 30 years and who don't watch the television, in them, 80% are against the war, even according to the Kremlin's own polling agencies. But also the polls are becoming very unreliable, more and more people just don't answer. This was one poll which is already in the April. It was sort of like street polling, but uh, it was not made by phone or internet, but in the street. But about 60% were refused to answer the questions, and then 15% were supporting the war. But then if you remove the 62%, then it becomes that actually almost uh, half are supporting the war. So. But this is probably of these people who refuse to answer, they are probably more against the war than supporting the war. So we cannot really currently even know what's the, basically the situation in the Russian society. was mostly supporting the war during the first weeks or a couple of months, but what's happening now, no one really knows. So it's different initiatives. Uh, there are like lots of, of, because all of this, like Navalny organization and many old human rights organizations, they have been banned and destroyed and they don't have any kind of clandestine alternative structures. 
So now there is dozens of different bigger or smaller anti-war initiatives. I cannot tell about all of them. But I think one of the most important is called feminist anti-war resistance, because like in many countries also in Russia, the feminism has been growing strongly during the last 10 years. <laughs> Because it's very, can be quite effective in using, uh, using internet and social media. And these kind of new feminist groups, they are consolidated now in this uh, feminist anti war resistance network, which is kind of decentralized network. They have uh, 34,000 subscribers in this Telegram channel. This is one of the few ways you can kind of measure how much it is, but it's also, of course, not reliable because theoretically you can also put some robot to follow you in Telegram. And also your political opponents maybe follow you in Telegram, but it's some indicator of how wide is the reach. Telegram is now the most important opposition social media in, in Russia because in Russia, they tried to ban Telegram already five years ago, but uh, they managed to technologically evade by changing IP, many IP addresses very quickly. So they kind of managed to manage to evade this ban. And uh, this cause of decentralized protest is spread uh, to 78 different cities, and they have like photo report, which is not just a claim, but they can, it can be shown. It's made and uh, of different initiatives who are organizing kind of street action. This is the most important, but it's not maybe even street action. I just can call them like or street in the Twitter marks, more like uh, outdoor actions. Because this is an example we said while you are reading this, uh, children are dying in Ukraine, and then there is some some teddy bear in blood and so on. And this is just put to some public park so that people can see there. So it's not even that people are gathering somewhere in the street to do a demonstration, but it's this kind of, of how to say, diffusing art in different places and parts and parks and, and yards and, and houses and so on. And one of the groups which is behind it is a feminist group called Eight Initiative Group in St. Petersburg. It's been around already maybe three or four years. But they were targeted uh, to this criminal case that uh, the special services were claiming that they were organizing bomb hoax calls. So, also, lots of people are now facing these charges of organizing this fake criminal case of organizing some bomb terrorism. And uh, some of them had to escape from Russia. Then also, there are different initiatives to support soldiers, one students, uh, students and, and workers who are facing problems because of their anti-war activities. Uh, and the students and those groups, they are, they are kind of connected because you have, there is a conscription in Russia, but most of the people may avoid the military by the presence, for example, if you go to university, you are exempt from the army during your studies. But uh, the military conscription age ends at 27 years, so if you study until you are 25, then you just have to avoid the follow-up for two more years, and then you are out. But if you don't go to university, then you have to hire uh, 10 years, which is much more. But uh, but yeah, so kind of spreading information how to avoid the conscription, it's, it's important to spread among the students, and lots of kind of alternative or independent student, student activists who are involved in this. 
And there is also movement for conscious object. There is initiative called Call of Consciousness. I don't know if it's a good translation, but it's kind of legal supported how to avoid the army. And the interesting thing right now in Russia is that as far as there is no declaration of war and there is no general mobilization, it's not actually obligatory to go to war. Even if you're a contract soldier that you get to get a salary, you can uh, like sign a paper that, okay, I refuse my contract or I, I keep my contract but I don't go to war. And there are actually cases that people have managed to do this. And also how to avoid the if you are a conscript, how to avoid going to army, there is kind of, 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 of SEMA, how you can uh, navigate in this bureaucracy by making different kind of, of letters and names and complaints, and how you can basically legally avoid going to army. Sometimes, of course, there can be lots of pressure, and uh, not maybe even practice possible to use this legal opportunities, but some of the people manage to do this. This might change if there is at some point like general mobilization or uh, declaration of war, then of course, conscripts will have much less rights. So there is initiative students against war, and also there is this, um, yeah, this actually. It's not really visible. Anti-job net is all the anarchist initiative. It's already existed for 20 years. In the peacetime, it functioned more like a blacklist of employers. That if you have problems with your salary or work condition, you can go there, and then people can find this information and they don't have a job for the same place. It's also very popular. Something probably the most popular on this website, even if it's just kind of this narrow focus. But now during the war, it's a new problem that people have only refused to spread uh, propaganda in their workplaces. They are, they are uh, also facing this repression. And, uh, and uh, the anti-job is organizing that legal support. There is now some financing. There will be a consultation on legal support for, for example, teachers who are put out of their jobs because they are refusing to, to spread anti-propaganda. Even, even teachers in the kindergarten might have these problems because even the small children, sometimes they want to do some brainwashing. This is not visible, but there is also an initiative called Antibiosity. In the first weeks of the war, there was a guy that okay, you can just call sick and you can go to work, and this is kind of the kind of like uh, opposition against the war. So there is this kind of, of like different initiatives and, and ideas. And then also one, which is a new kind of, well, it's almost standing. Studying also different uh, movements of these national minorities and indigenous people movements, but it's been now growing heavily because all this war, of course, it means turn towards this ultranationalism. Previously, especially when there was a strong ultra right movement in Russia, for Kremlin propaganda, it was important to stress that we are a multinational country. It was like, okay, the Russians are the most important, but everyone else is also important. But now it's been turning more towards this kind of general Russian chauvinism and, and the obviously 
obviously results um, counter reaction because Russia is a multinational country and there are areas in Russia where Russians are, I think Russians are actually a minority. And these areas are also present, like all represented in the casualties because they are in the two regions. So, for example, there is, I think already today that already more than 200 people are completely dead from Buryatia, which is one of the Siberian republics. The people, they are one of the Mongol groups. So it's a full region. People don't have so much chances. The contract soldiers, they get several times average salary. So people try to use this opportunity, but now there is very big casualty rates, so they just don't come back. So there are different initiatives that we know very, not very familiar with the foundation sessions of Russia. These are kind of creating anti-colonialist critics of Russian imperialism and also, also organizing some anti-war protests in this minority nationality communities. It's not like very strong, but also in general, the liberal movement, the feminist movement, the feminists, they are more inspired by some anti-colonialist discussion in the Western feminism, so they are also supporting this minority, nationality, and indigenous people's movements. So then I will talk a bit about the direct actions, which are also happening. It's not uh, very visible. There is a map of arson attacks against the military collab centers. The collab center is where the conscript had to go in some certain day. And then they define what is, is the fit for the army and, and where would they be served. And also, when they go to the army over there, and then they, uh, they should go somewhere. And uh, there has been lots of attacks. And there is now different kind of, of uh, radical anti regime, telegram channels, whatever is somewhere is an accident or fire, they are claiming that uh, this is um, this, uh, a sabotage section, which is of course not always the case. It's also possible that some of the sabotage attacks are organized by Ukrainian special services, but probably this collapse center arson attacks, they are not so likely to be organized by Ukrainian secret services because it's happening in very distant small places like in the middle of Siberia or Far East, in some uh, small cities. And also there is like so many of these call-up places, it's not uh, like very effective to destroy them because there are thousands of them, but uh, or if you are in the city and you don't want to go to army, it might make sense because then it uh, makes more difficult for the people who are basically sure to send you to army, they have to go to some other place and maybe the paperwork is destroyed and the computers so it's a big uh, disturbance. So this is basically this kind of actions that make sense, mostly from point of view of, of local uh, young Russians who don't support our war. Um, and uh, but yeah, also more talk of the attacks some in couple of the demonstration. There are railway attacks. I can show some pictures. The rail uh, transport is very important for the military means because because of course lots of this. Military stuff is so heavy that it uh, is dangerous even you know, to drive it sometimes in some roads. If it's roadie, if it's not uh, road is not in such a good condition, so 
the, and also in the Siberia there are many places you cannot really even go with the highway in, in some parts of the year. So for the transport, the railway is important, but also if you sabotage the railway, it can be even your loss of function. This was very quite uh, much happening in Belarus. And in Belarus in general, this kind of anti-war movement is much more stronger than in Russia, and it's probably even is the reason why Belarus actually didn't join the war. The, the Belarusian dictator, this Lukashenko, he was just uh, kind of too afraid. And there is now Russia is trying to put some pressure to Belarus, and also there was rumors that there would be false flag attacks there. So might be that at some point the Belarus is also the dictator of Lukashenko is completely dependent on Putin. So might be that at some point he will force him to join the war, but this has not happened. But there was also lots of repressions and, and very brutal arrests against people who were suspected of this sabotage in Belarus, but it's been uh, quite effective there. In Russia it's happening less, but might be happening more in the future. But also these direct actions, they are not only, well I would say that mostly it's not organized by anarchists, we don't know many of these actions, they haven't been clear claimed, there might be some pictures that some other cocktail is being shown, or maybe just some news, news but most uh, of these people we don't know who is doing them. And with what, what motivation, but also that some Nazi groups are also supporting these kind of attacks. It's more of this kind of accelerationist Nazis who just want to generate general chaos. Because like I said, there are Nazis who are supporting Ukraine in Russia, but also some Nazis who are supporting the Russian army. And then there are Nazis who are against both. So it's also to think that whatever is your position in this war, you are always in the side of the Nazis. Nazis, so you cannot say that, okay, you cannot be side of Ukraine because there are Nazis in Ukraine, because every side and even against all, all sides, there are some Nazis. And some Nazi group was claiming uh, four thousand attacks against these uh, against these uh, corrupt centers. And also there has been some Nazis have been arrested, but and they are mostly supporting almost everyone who is arrested suspected of doing these direct actions, but uh, not, not masses. So there is some pictures. This was also against the um, National Guard, which is also the riot police. It was in the Far East, north of Russia. Uh, this was, I think, in Moscow region, a Molotov cocktail attack against the um, against the collapse center in the night time. This was in the center of Moscow, the local cocktail attack against the Nazis of the riot police. And this was sabotage in the Moscow region. This was claimed by anarchists. This is called the anarcho-communist fighting organization. There was some railroad track which was only going to the, some military places, so there was no civilian transport in this area. And also, this is was some newer. There was this was what was happened last week and this week. There was uh, mortal cocktail attack in Krasnodar. This was against the FSB building. And uh, this was another in Vladimir. The railroad sabotage action was claimed also by the fighting organization of anarcho communists in the Vladimir area. It's it's uh, was used to be. 
like the insurrectionist project called Anarchist Fighter, which was in the Onion network in the Tor. They also have a blog in the Noblogs. But now they call themselves fighting organization of, of anarchist communists and they try to organize like these kind of actions. And then uh, I think yesterday there was a big, uh, big uh, railroad thing in Amur. It's far inside the There was like 14 wagons went off the trails and this whole Trans-Siberian Railroad was halted for several hours for this. And this was claimed by group which is called Stop the, Stop the Wagons. Which is connected, it's also initiative which tries to organize and agitate for this kind of railroad sabotage, but it's more kind of mainstream opposition. Because there are like actually people who are come from this kind of quite moderate, let's go to elections or against election fraud, who are also now tries to support this kind of more radical protests and, and uh, also some. And railroad sabotage. But so, of course, it was claimed by them, I don't know for sure, maybe it was in the news, and they said that okay, this was a sabotage action, but also, also many of these just random accidents, they have not been claimed that this was the blame, so it can be a sabotage action. And if it, if it was a sabotage, it's interesting because this, this was in the Far East. And so then some initiatives, yeah, about this anarcho-communist fighting organization I already told. There is also a group of general, uh, there are Russian anarchists and anti-fascists who are fighting in uh, different uh, groups of this territorial defense in Ukraine, because many, many people, uh, anarchists and anti-fascists, had to escape from Russia to Ukraine. Ukraine is one of the, basically, one of the only places where you can go without visa and even sometimes without passport because the, the, from Russia before the war because the border was not so well controlled, which don't deport people back to Russia. There were cases even actually about maybe two years ago that they tried to deport Belarusian anarchists back to Belarus, but uh, this was overturned in the court. So there is kind of some legal mechanisms also to defend the refugees including anarchists so yeah, but now of course this Senate is trying to fight against the occupation because if Russia occupies the Ukraine, they will be part. But uh, there is also like a general Russian opposition group which is, has organized called Pre-Russia Legion. I think like a few months ago they said that they have 400 people. Now they didn't say, they don't say how many they have, but in the Telegram they have some of the subscribers. Some of these might be Ukrainians or people abroad, but this has also some support all around Russia and, uh, and also in the, the immigration. This is it's a bit unclear political political motivation. There are also like prisoners of war who have joined this joined this, and, uh, but yeah, it's basically they just said okay, we need to fight. I'm on the struggle against the Putin regime, but the alternative is not so clear. Also, similar initiative is called Ross Partisan. It's also people who are calling for for underground arms struggle. There is it's supported Ilya Ponomarov. He was a kind of independent leftist deputy in the Russian State Duma. He was the only deputy who was working against the annexation of Crimea. And now he escaped 
Yeah, so the repressions. So there has been repressions sometimes for people who do direct actions have been arrested because many of these direct actions they have not been not so well planned. It's just that someone just feels very strong, strongly that has to do at least something because the society is very autonomized. And then maybe don't find uh, any people to do uh, actions with. But also people get get imprisoned for all kinds of all the kinds of bullshit like this. Alexandra Skotchenko case is quite known. She's artist, and she made an action that he, she was just in the shop replacing this price tags with some more information. So instead of there's like red euros, there's like twenty people diving. Or, or even on something right now. So this kind of small anti-war propaganda in the shop. But then some other customer called the police and uh, and uh, now she has been in already for months to accused of spreading this fake information about Russian Army, which is up to 10 years prison sentence. This is a new law, which is just some complete uh, Complete random uh, repression. So we don't know. There is no court precedent. We don't know how long prison sentence she can eventually get. But uh, this is kind of stuff that we can get arrested. And right now there is at least thirty uh, people are in general prison for anti-war activities. But this changes every week. It's it's more and more people who are getting arrested. So, at, I would say then, at last, yeah, it's already around one hour. I will just say a couple of, about a couple of, of initiatives. Yeah, I'm involved. One is kind of, there has been attempts to organize campaign of energy product against Russia. And there is different groups around Europe who are involved in this. This is a bit, uh, Controversial topic in Russia, not all Russian activists and other activists are supporting this kind of boycott. But, also, but in our group, autonomous action, we also don't have a kind of common position on this. But also it's not something that uh, is so relevant even to be discussed in Russia because it's not, uh, you cannot kind of organize this kind of topic in Russia, you can organize it from abroad. Also, many countries they were quite quickly making these decisions. So, in some ways, governments are doing so fast that this kind of campaign has not even been kind of time to organize. There is a website which has put in which has some proposals, some initiatives about this record. But, uh, but uh, 
But one problem is that uh, that uh, now when Russia cannot export my gas and, uh, and oil so much with the pipes, they can just ship them, and there is like blockup of of European countries of buying oil, for example, but there is no blockup of European ships shipping this oil to India, for example. So what happens now is that. Greek tankers are going to Russia and taking this uh, this oil and taking it to some India or some other countries. So if there was a border council with the maritime insurance, this would be more, more difficult. So this is one thing maybe that uh, different moments in different countries have to discuss, but maybe this kind of border possible to organize. Then uh, another initiative is Currently, it's supporting uh, anti-war prisoners. It's an anarchist black cross of Moscow. It's a small group. It's been uh, around for a long time, almost 20 years. It's currently, in, at least in Europe, it might be the oldest or among the most oldest anarchist black cross groups. And before, it was supporting mostly anarchists and anti-authoritarians and different. Uh, Different friends of anarchists and uh, environmental activists, for example, over anti-fascists who were repressed. But now with this anti-war struggle, it's also as there is a kind of new big allies to support all these anti-war prisoners. And uh, there are lots of also anti-repression initiatives in, in Russia right now, and also existing human rights, since human rights movement has been big already in the Soviet Union times. Since maybe 60s or 70s, there has been lots of, of prisoner support activism in Russia, but almost no one is supporting these people who are actually doing something violent or sabotage or this kind of thing. thing uh, mostly these human rights activists are only supporting like non violent and uh, non kind of criminal protesters. So people who are arrested now for burning this military collapse and also throwing some auto cocktails, they are mostly only supported by anarchist black cross Moscow or some individual people. So yeah, it's not because of the sanctions it's not possible to send money to Russia, but I see US PayPal and cryptocurrencies. Uh, and it has the site under autonom website, autonom.org/abc. It's the latest black cross news. This is Russian, but it's also in English. English you can find there. And another anarchist initiative. And this is to it's autonomous faction. It's also the old organization, and it was at some point quite wide, or relatively wide, the Libertarian Communist Federation involved with other groups all around the Russia. But recent years, because of these repressions and the uh, new situation, it's more has changed more like a media project. Before the war, it was still possible to organize public events and lectures in Moscow and also to publish a paper journal. 
But now, as we post around all of this, and it's at least temporarily only online information projects, but it still has a perspective to create a federation, but this is kind of long term plans. But currently, just try to keep activists in Russia because also many of these opposition media, like Nova Gazeta, and uh, like Eho Moskvi radio station had to close all together, and then there was this Dorsh Cable, or even at the um, TV channel, they had to close. There was Medusa Project and Nova Gazeta. Nova Gazeta has got the Nobel Prize. Recently, they have also been forced to move abroad. But uh, Autonome tries to stay in Russia to be more connected with the situation and understand what's happening. Uh, because it's kind of important that not everyone is migrating, but for this, you kind of have to increase the, the security and not to recruit new people, but to keep more close thing. And uh, it's a kind of a new situation, so we are launching a fundraising in the Firefight to adapt to this new situation and also to temporarily pay one person a salary to mandate this because it's not possible to organize any support events, it's not possible to record new people, but we kind of have to keep the project running until uh, there is some sort of other solution with the situation. But yeah, this was everything as far as this this uh, introduction or, or lecture, so we can now have some some questions or discussion. But yeah, I think I maybe yeah. So yeah, if you have some questions, you can or comments, you can say. Okay, nothing in here. Maybe I just stop the streaming also because it's difficult to. Difficult to uh, have uh, these questions and discussion while the stream is on.